This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is David Wallen. David Wallen is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Albany and Mill Valley, California, who has been practicing, teaching, and writing about psychotherapy for more than three decades. His classic book, Attachment in Psychotherapy, has been translated into 10 languages. He's lectured on attachment and psychotherapy in Australia, Europe, Canada, and throughout the United States. With Sounds True, David Wallen is offering a new eight-week online course called Attachment in the Practice of Psychotherapy, Relational Transformation, Nonverbal Experience, and the Psychology of the Therapist. This is a course that begins on September 11th, 2017, and you're welcome to find out more at SoundsTrue.com. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, David and I spoke about how our early life experiences can lead to either secure or insecure attachment, and how to understand the four different attachment patterns or styles that are now widely accepted in psychological research. We also talked about how, in David's own experience, there have been three big healing factors pointing him in the direction of secure attachment, a good marriage, effective therapy, and the practice of meditation. We talked about what parents need to know to raise children who are securely attached and how important it is to make room for the complete inner life of a child. And finally, David and I talked about the importance of tracking nonverbal experience in psychotherapy and how that can point a therapist in the direction of discovery. Here's my conversation with the very warm and very brilliant David Wallen. To begin with, David, you're known as the author of the classic book, Attachment in Psychotherapy. And I think more and more people are starting to hear about attachment styles, attachment patterns, if you will, and even these four different designations, secure attachment, avoidant attachment, ambivalent attachment, and disorganized attachment. But I think as this language of attachment styles enters the culture. There's a lot of misunderstanding. So where I wanted to start our conversation is if you could help people really understand these four different styles and how someone could self-identify which style is the style that they fall into. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, I guess the first thing I should say, uh, just to complicate matters, right, from the start, is that from my perspective, these four discrete uh, categories or classifications um, are profoundly useful for research purposes. Uh, but, but I think when it comes to understanding ourselves, or as therapists, when it comes to understanding the patient psychology or the therapist's own psychology, I, I think it's probably more meaningful uh, to think of a kind of layering uh, of these uh, four attachment patterns. Um, because I, I think the reality is that, uh, and, th and then I'll talk about the attachment patterns and how they might be uh, distinguished one from, from the other. Uh, but I, I think that 
the reality is that these attachment patterns are both uh, determined in the course of our development, but they're also context dependent so that someone might have a secure attachment pattern in one relationship, uh, an avoidant attachment pattern in another relationship, and uh, a disorganized or, or what's called an unresolved attachment pattern in, in yet another relationship. So the point is that we, well, it may be true that we lead with a particular pattern. I think it's also true that uh, what Ever the context that will tend to determine uh, which particular pattern we are lodged in uh, at, at at any given time. That's very helpful. I want I want to make sure though that I understand what you mean by this term layering. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, we we may be getting ahead of ourselves, but um, I think that it can be helpful. Uh, as a therapist or as an individual trying to understand uh, herself, himself, or other people, I, I think it can be helpful to keep in mind that while we all are supported by what I regard as the adaptive illusion of a singular self, um, I think the reality is that we all occupy multiple uh, self-states or even selves, again, depending on the context. So getting back to attachment patterns, I think that depending upon the particular moment in the particular relationship, there may be a particular self-state uh, or a particular self uh, that's activated. And, um, you know, if I think about myself, for example, I can occupy uh, a pretty secure uh, state of mind with respect to attachment um, in, in certain relationships. You know, for example, uh, I, I think in the, in the conversation that you and I are having, Tammy, um, you know, I, I'm feeling for the moment reasonably secure. And um, on, the, on the other hand, uh, you know, I think about a patient I saw this morning who made me feel quite uh, insecure. And I think the, the particular flavor of the insecurity, you know, might have been described as avoidant, meaning that... Uh, uh, I was pretty much up in my head, avoiding my feelings. Um, but I think it was the particular context, it was the particular quality of our interaction that that activated that that part of me. And then I think in in other contexts, uh, you know, um, what could could be described as an ambivalent or the adult version of an ambivalent uh, orientation is. Um, uh, described as a preoccupied state of mind with respect to attachment, and I can experience that, or I can experience in, in certain, you know, particularly uh, triggering contexts, uh, what's described as uh, disorganized or in the adult and unresolved uh, state of mind with respect to attachment, which really means unresolved with respect to trauma or loss. Um, so, Maybe this would be a good time to say something about the ways in which we can differentiate these four attachment patterns that attachment researchers initially identified uh, in their observations of uh, infants uh, and later came to observe in, uh, in adults. So the secure pattern uh, is one in which we've you you might say that there's a uh, kind of um, balanced uh, capacity both for autonomy on the one hand and for attachment for finding comfort in connection uh, on the other hand um, and I think the hallmark of a secure state of mind with respect to attachment 
is freedom or flexibility. In other words, we've got access to our feelings. We've, we've also got access to our thoughts. Um, we can pay attention to what's going on in our minds. We can also pay attention to the sensation of our bodies. Um, so that's a secure state of mind. And I think when, when attachment researchers identified the varieties of insecurity, uh, they first noticed two flavors of insecurity. Um, the first, which you've mentioned, and I have too, an avoidant uh, uh, orientation. And the second is an ambivalent orientation. And in these insecure patterns, one sees a skew. Rather than seeing flexibility and balance, uh, one sees a particular skew. So in a, uh, an avoidant uh, pattern, there's a skew away from, a drift uh, away from attachment, away from connection or closeness. And there's a, a much greater comfort with autonomy, with separateness, with self-definition. And then by contrast, in the ambivalent pattern, sometimes called an anxious pattern, uh, or, or what I, as I mentioned, what's uh, described in adulthood as a preoccupied pattern, there's a skew away from self-definition, autonomy, and there's a tendency to lose the self in deference to the other. So there's a preoccupation with uh, connection, with the threat of the disruption of connection, and so on. And and finally, uh, some years into the project of researching attachment, uh, uh, investigators discovered a fourth pattern, uh, which they described as disorganized, disoriented attachment. And here, there's a kind of um, uh, uh, kind of kind of a, an oscillation between kind of a uh, very very intense uh, preoccupation with loss and with connection and a uh, tendency to cling and so on, and that alternates with a tendency to isolate oneself. Uh, uh, to go it alone, uh, and so on. And I, I think there's another way that I could talk about these quite simply about these four patterns. Uh, and that is to say that the first pattern, the secure pattern is the inheritance from evolution. In other words, we are designed by evolution uh, to seek the comfort, the connection to, the attachment to strong, what uh, the father of attachment theory, John Bowlby, called stronger and or wiser others. Um, and the idea was that in the course of evolution, uh, particularly in the natural environments to which our uh, human ancestors had to adapt, there were all sorts of threats to survival and an infant, a small child separated from uh, a parent, a stronger and or wiser other, an attachment figure for, separated for more than a few minutes, uh, much less than a few hours, uh, would likely become, uh, you know, lunch for a leopard, uh, shall we say, um, so that we are programmed, or it's hardwired in uh, human infants, and for that matter, uh, other primates, to seek the to seek proximity to an attachment figure when we are threatened. So that's the primary biological attachment strategy, and each of the uh, insecure uh, attachment patterns. Uh, reflects a um, a, a, a kind of uh, a different strategy, so that in um, avoidant infants uh, whose history involves experiences of being rejected uh, by parents or 
highly controlled by parents, uh, with the avoidant pattern, there is what's called a deactivating attachment strategy. So um, rather than seeking the comfort of connection when freaked out, the avoidant infant really uh, tunes out uh, all internal and external cues that might activate the attachment behavioral system, might activate that seeking of proximity, because that hasn't worked out. Um, and so what we see in the avoidant orientation, the adult version of which is described as a dismissing state of mind with respect to attachment, in other words, dismissing of attachment, dismissing of the importance of attachment relationships. Here, here what we see is a kind of uh, blunting of awareness of internal cues that might prompt the seeking of connection. And the problem, one of the problems there is not only that uh, in an avoidant or dismissing state of mind, we wind up quite isolated from others, uh, sometimes lonely, um, but in addition, this deactivating attachment strategy compels us to tune out internal experience in general, both our own internal experience, the internal experience of other people. And so one of the hallmarks of an avoidant uh, orientation is that we're out of touch with our feelings. Uh, we seem to exist, as it were, from the neck up. Um, by contrast, uh, infants who are described as ambivalent or their adult counterparts described as uh, preoccupied, <clears throat> these uh, uh, infants and, adult, and adults have what's called a, a hyperactivating attachment strategy. And so these uh, infants who, as a rule, have had parents who are unpredictably available, kind of now you see them, now you don't, they're tuned into the child, they're tuned out, um, they're available on the one hand, and they're, the next moment they're preoccupied. These infants developed what's called a hyper-activating attachment strategy, which means that there's a kind of constant vigilance uh, uh, and a tendency to amplify internal and external cues that might uh, might activate the attachment behavioral system, the seeking of proximity uh, to attachment figures. And the idea there is that if you've got an unpredictably available attachment figure, then it's a pretty good strategy to make one's uh, distress too conspicuous to ignore. And so these, so the hallmark of, of an infant, uh, an uh, ambivalent infant, uh, or a preoccupied adult, is a hyper emotionality, um, and and so you, I think you can see that you know the the avoidant or the dismissing adult in some ways is the polar opposite of the ambivalent or the. Uh, uh, preoccupied. You know, one is all about uh, feelings. The other is all about the avoidance of feelings. One is all about connection. The other is all about the avoidance of connection. And last but not least, the uh, disorganized infant or the adult who's described as unresolved, meaning unresolved with respect to trauma uh, or loss, um, these are folks who exhibit what might be described as described as the collapse of a uh, of an organized uh, attachment strategy, and so there's a kind. Of what was observed in uh, in the research uh, on uh, certain infants was that their their behavior was chaotic, was incomprehensible was bizarre. They don't have an organized attachment strategy. They, they don't have the secure strategy of seeking the comfort of connection when they're freaked out. They don't have the avoidance strategy of tuning out all 
uh, internal and external cues that might prompt them to seek the con- the comfort of connection. They don't have the hyperactivating strategy where they make their uh, distress uh, un- unmistakably evident. They they don't have an organized strategy, um, and um, so what what one sees in adults who are unresolved with respect to trauma is a kind of oscillation between extremes of avoiding other people and clinging to other people. And what one also sees in the context of um, uh, uh, situations where, for example, in therapy, where their therapist might invite them to address their experiences of trauma or loss, these Uh, unresolved adults become a little loose, a little, a little, um, what shall I say? Well, technically speaking, they manifest what are described as lapses in discourse or lapses in reasoning. So a lapse in discourse might be, uh, well, like manifest by a patient of mine who uh, seemed to be a solid citizen, but when I asked her to talk about her relationship with her parents, her voice dropped to a spooky whisper. Mm-hmm. So that would be an example of a kind of a lapse in discourse. Suddenly there's a shift. And a lapse in reasoning might be manifest by, an, uh, you know, I think of another patient of mine who uh, had the idea that uh, his brother, who had been dead for many years, somehow had been able to sustain the belief that his brother was still alive. So that's a lapse in reasoning because, you know, you can't be alive and dead at the same Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Now, David, one of the things I'm curious about as you're describing these different patterns in your work as a psychotherapist, I'm sure you work with people who have avoidant, ambivalent, and unresolved attachment issues. Yep. Is your goal to try to help people move to secure attachment, would you say that's a primary goal of how you work with people? And is that a process that takes decades? I mean, it, it seems like that's it's a huge shift in, as you said, this leading orientation. And tell me a little bit about that. First, is that the goal? And then how do you work with people in that direction? Yeah. Um, I I think that is a, a, what, what you've just proposed as a way of thinking about a goal in psychotherapy, you know, to move people from insecurity to, to secure attachment. Um, I think that's certainly a meaningful goal. And uh, I I think I, when I'm working with patients, I don't articulate it to myself in exactly that way. But I do think that, um, look, I, I, I think more in terms of creating possibilities for patients. So if a patient is avoidant or dismissing, meaning, among other things, avoidant, avoidant of intimacy and avoidant of, of the world of feelings, you know, I'm, I'm going to be trying to make greater intimacy possible and greater connection with feelings possible. Um, and so the, the outcome ideally is somebody who's more trusting, less fearful of connection, uh, more knowledgeable about his uh, or her uh, internal experience of feelings and bodily sensations and so on. Um, and I, I think there is a, uh, what shall I say, a kind of uh, unfortunate uh, reality in psychotherapy, which is this. Psychologically speaking, there's a way in which uh, people who have a modicum of uh, psychological health, uh, people who are relatively secure, uh, they can 
change, they can overcome whatever uh, obstacles uh, you know their histories have placed in their path. Uh, they can and they can accomplish that sort of change much much more quickly uh, than somebody who is more uh, more insecure, who's really you know, rigidly lodged in an avoidance stance, a dismissing stance, or a preoccupied stance. Um, and, and you know, in a way, it, maybe it's kind of uh, self-evident, but those of us with histories of trauma, I think, are most, both most in need of the help that therapy can potentially afford, but in some ways, least capable of using that help. And so somebody with a history of trauma typically, uh, in, in my experience, needs a longer, more intensive therapy in order to achieve their personal uh, goals. Okay, so let's look at this question of attachment from the parent's viewpoint. And let's talk to a new parent for the moment, a parent mm-hmm. who is just getting ready to conceive, yeah. even before conception. And yep. they want to be sure to raise a child with secure attachment who can take and make the most of therapy when they're an adult and uh, not fall into one of these insecure categories, what would you say to those new parents? Uh, you know, it's, there's an interest, <laughs> there's a, there's an interesting, uh, kind of, uh, few things that I would say. Um, I, I think the first thing that I would say is, uh, you know, parent, heal thyself. Uh, in other words, um, what seems to be the most powerful determinant of our ability to raise secure kids is our own security. You know, one of the findings of attachment research is that uh, the psychology of the parent tends to become you might say the psychology of the developing child. So secure parents tend to raise secure kids. Uh, dismissing parents tend to raise avoidant kids. Um, preoccupied parents raise uh, ambivalent kids, and uh, traumatized parents uh, raise disorganized or traumatized kids. I mean that that's the pattern. So I, I think the the best a parent can do for her or his kids is to do whatever is possible to get himself or herself more together. So that, that, that's, that's, that's one point. And the, the other point is, is this, that attachment researchers uh, and other researchers in related fields have identified the features of the most developmentally facilitated relationships. In other words, we now know what parents can ideally uh, do in order to raise secure kids. Um, And, you know, I could sum it up very, very simply. Essentially, there are four qualities to the most, uh, to the relationships that are most likely to produce secure, resilient, uh, flexible kids. Um, the first quality of these relationships is that the parents make maximum room for their kids' feelings, uh, desires, uh, impulses, uh, uh, you know, their, their kids views with regard to what's going on. So they do their best to generate maximally inclusive relationship. They make maximum room, uh, for their kids experience. Um, the second feature of these, uh, developmentally facilitated relationships, uh, is that these are relationships in which the parents, 
recognize and repair disruptions in the relationship with their kids. Uh, the third ingredient is that good parents uh, upgrade the quality of communication in the relationship with their kids to higher and higher levels of uh, complexity and awareness. Uh, you know, so the you know the the fundamental the example might be you know that they relate to their kids in such a way that kids can learn to transition from a pre-verbal to a verbal world. Um, uh, and the fourth uh, feature of developmentally facilitated relationships is that parents that these good parents are willing to actively engage and struggle with their kids. So this is in the department of uh, 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 strong, you know, providing structure in their relationship with their kids, confronting, uh, you know, difficult, uh, problematic behavior, setting limits, saying no, uh, all of that stuff. Um, so these, these are the four key ingredients. They, you know, the relationships need to be inclusive. Disruptions need to be recognized and repaired. The quality of the communication needs to be upgraded. Uh, and the parent needs to be willing to, uh, to really, struggle and engage and, 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 uh, confront kids and have, have reasonably high expectations. Now, if it's okay, David, I'd like to ask you a personal question. You mentioned you were feeling secure in this conversation. So I'm, uh, yeah. and I'm hoping you'll still feel that way after I ask you this question, which is, you also mentioned that most of us have a leading attachment pattern. And yes. I'm curious, were you raised in a situation that was secure for you, or was it an insecure situation for you? Uh, it was definitely insecure. Um, and, you know, as, as a therapist, I think um, I share uh, a history uh, growing up that I think is a sort of pretty average history for those uh, of us who choose to become therapists. Um, you know, there's, there's um, an archetype, you know, the famous archetype of the wounded healer. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that's, um, you know, that archetype exists for a reason. And I, and I think that um, both for better and for worse, many therapists have backgrounds that are anything but secure. Um, in fact, uh, there are a number of writers, and I'm among them, uh, who believe that the kind of characteristic history of someone who chooses to become a therapist really begins with the unresolved trauma of the future therapists parent or parents. Uh, and that, um, you know, I mentioned or just a few minutes ago that um, the psychology of the parent tends to become the psychology of the child. And, and so I think when you have a parent with unresolved trauma, that parent imposes traces or more of trauma upon that parent's kids. And, um, you know, there's another apropos this kind of characteristic history of the future therapist or the, those who choose to become therapists. Um, there's an interesting finding of attachment research, which is that kids who at age one are assessed to be disorganized. Um, by age four, five, or six, these kids have developed an organized attachment strategy. And this strategy seems to come in two flavors. You know, one is called a controlling punitive strategy. And these are kids who flip the ordinary parent-child uh, relationship by 
ordering their parents around, being very angry at their parents. That's a controlling caregiving strategy. Because the idea here, by the way, is that if you've got parents who in one way or another are scary, then you have to find a way to control those parents. And it seems to me that those of us who choose to become therapists have often made use of uh, the other variation on the controlling theme, which is the controlling caregiving strategy. And here we take charge of scary parents by taking care of those parents. So I think, you know, what's true for me and I think for many uh, other therapists is that uh, in some ways, you know, my first clinical training occurred in the context of my family where I learned to become a kind of precocious uh, emotion regulator for my rather uh, volatile mother. And so in in that context, you know, uh, I mean, just to re- to review it, you know, the, the, you know, the parent with unresolved trauma, that was my mother, uh, could be very, very angry. Uh, that was quite traumatizing for me. Um, and then I adapted to that fear of her anger by becoming something of a mind reader, uh, someone who could help to control uh, her emotions, to regulate her emotions. And so I learned, you might say, the rudiments of therapeutic skills uh, in the context of that first relationship. And, I, and I, so I think that that's a very, very long answer uh, to your question about my own attachment history. So you would fall into the ambivalent pattern? No. I, I mean, yes and no. I mean, uh, it's it's a little bit complicated, but I think that uh, growing up, I had traces of an ambivalent pattern for sure. In other words, I was very, very uh, concerned about maintaining at all costs the relationship with my mother who could turn angry and rejecting and all of that. Um so that's characteristic of a of an ambivalent pattern. I was very emotional and so on. Um, but I think I also had uh, what would be described, I'm guessing, uh, as some disorganization in my attachment history because some of the uh, parenting uh, was pretty scary, was pretty... Uh, uh, you know, my mother's anger could be pretty overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Well, well, first of all, thanks for sharing that. And sure. And it leads me to a, a question because I think yeah. many of us have had difficult childhoods. And part of the reason yep. we're interested in yep. this kind of broadcast on attachment patterns is we're working yep. with our own and Absolutely. trying to come into a place of greater healing and availability for intimacy and greater secure functioning. And I'm curious to know in your own sort of healing journey, what Mm. have you found has worked for you? Yes. You know, that's, that's a pretty easy question to answer. And I would say three things. Uh, the first is marriage to my wonderful wife. (laughs) Because I, I think, you know, one of the findings actually of attachment uh, research is that being with a relatively secure partner for, I don't know what the research uh, demonstrates, maybe five years, being with a relatively secure partner for five years or, or more can help someone with a lot of insecurity to become more secure. So I think I think my marriage was was absolutely key. I, I think uh, the therapy that I've been in has been essential, enormously helpful. Um, and then, last but not least, uh, meditation has been hugely uh, helpful over the course of the last fifteen years or so.
You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Well, let's talk about number two and number three, therapy and meditation. Okay. In terms of sure. therapy, help me understand the process, because I know this is a lot of what yeah. you teach on, how the yeah. process of therapy can help us heal our attachment wounds when it's yeah. effective. What makes it yeah. effective? Yeah. Um, you know, again, I think there's an, a, a pretty straightforward and simple answer Um which is that therapy, it seems to me, heals by providing the patient with a new and hopefully significantly better attachment relationship than the one uh, that originally shaped the patient. Um, So I, I think a lot of what makes good therapy possible is the quality of the relationship uh, that the patient has with the therapist. And um, good therapy, it seems to me, has pretty much the same characteristics as uh, a good parent-child relationship. In other words, as I mentioned before, a good, a good parent-child relationship, and I think by extension a good therapy relationship, is one that makes maximum room for the patient's experience you know, feelings, thoughts, uh, impulses, fantasies, just makes room for all of that. Um, it's also a relationship in which disruptions are recognized and repaired. It's a relationship in which the quality of communication is upgraded. Um, you know, so that for example, somebody who's been able to feel, but not to think about feelings is enabled to do that. Um, and, and finally, it's a relationship in, in which uh, there's the ability for the therapist and patient to struggle uh, with one another, which I think is a kind of a school for, um, you might say, uh, I don't know, assertiveness and uh, healthy uh, expressions of anger and, and so on. Um, so, but but again, it's 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 all about the quality of the relationship between a particular therapist and a particular patient. I mean, obviously, I could say a great deal more about about therapy, and um, I guess the one thing I would want to add, uh, and uh, this is a point that may be familiar to many of your listeners, but not all. It's this, that um, what's sometimes called talk therapy, really at its best, is about a great deal more than talk. Uh, Because it seems to me that the relationship uh, in therapy, like most of our relationships, if not all, unfolds, you might say, on two ends. interweaving tracks. There is the talk. There is the explicit, the verbal uh, dimension of the relationship, the therapeutic dialogue or what have you. Um, But there is also uh, what I like to call the nonverbal subtext. And it it seems to me that this nonverbal subtext, which is made up of what we evoke in other people, what other people evoke in us, what we enact with other people, the, the kind of uh, implicit uh, scenarios, uh, drama, you know, mini psychodramas. Uh, and it's also that that nonverbal subtext is also expressed in the body, you know, posture, uh, sensation, gestures, and so forth. And it seems to me that a good therapy is one that takes into account the nonverbal subtext as much as the explicit uh, 
therapeutic dialogue. I mean, that's a big part of how we get to uh, what patients can't or won't uh, put into words. Now, I do want to ask you a question about this before we move on to the okay. third factor that you yes. mentioned in your in your own mm-hmm. healing process, meditation, yep. which is yep. you're you're talking about the therapeutic relationship being healing in and of itself, and yep. the therapist, in a sense, potentially potentially, potentially having potentially. that having okay. that potential, and that in yep. a sense, the therapist is providing a kind of re healthy parenting that didn't exist. And for whatever right. reason, I'm imagining someone going to a therapist who's like 20 years younger than them and thinking, how's that going to work? And is this mm-hmm. is really that the right analogy, reparenting? I don't see this person as my parent. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's an, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I've never personally had the experience of... Uh, being with a much younger therapist. Uh, but it seems to me that in a way, uh, the key is not so much, uh, you might say reparenting. It's more like having a new experience of a relationship in which one is, uh, looking to another for help. In other words, it's having a new attachment relationship. And it seems to me that it's possible to have a new attachment relationship with somebody who's older, somebody who's younger, somebody who's the same age. You know, as as Bowlby said, an attachment figure is someone who we regard as stronger and or wiser. It doesn't necessarily have to be older. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like you're rewiring, if you will, that capacity to seek shelter in mm-hmm. someone who's stronger and wiser and to feel like you're getting the shelter that you need. Yes, I think that's I think that's apt. Um, but 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 I think in in some ways the point is not only to get the security and the shelter as you put it, uh, uh, of a new uh, attachment relationship. You know, the point is also to have a relationship in which as many of the uh, facets of who we are as people, which maybe couldn't be safely expressed in our relationship with our original attachment figures, our parents, um, in which there's room uh, for all of those multiple facets of us, you know, our dependency, but also our autonomy, you know, our deep feelings, but also our uh, deep thoughts. Um, You know, the idea, again, is a a healing relationship in therapy, just like a a good parent-child relationship is one in which there's maximum room uh, for, for experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then I also wanted to ask you a question about this nonverbal subtext that's happening in the psychotherapeutic encounter. And I'm wondering if you could give me an example of how you work with that. Just something, something that comes Um, up pretty regularly. Sure. Sure. Um, uh, I guess the, the 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 example that comes to mind is uh, is is this that um, I, you know I I have a patient who uh, um, um, I've I've been seeing for you know several years and the patient had made significant progress um, and and in a given in a particular session. I noticed that um, well, let, let's put it this way. I had come to feel that the patient was someone who had a very, very difficult time being, quote, real, unquote. Uh, or put a little differently, this was a, a, a young woman who had difficulty taking herself seriously. 
And I was finding myself in the, in the therapy sessions feeling that, you know, that, that our connection and what we were focusing on together, it, it was just a bit more superficial than it needed to be. And so I was pretty determined to find a way to understand more about why the relationship between me and this young woman seemed to have this particular uh, quality. Anyway, in, 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 in a particular session, I noticed that virtually every time she said something serious, uh, virtually every time she expressed a feeling that there would follow some nervous laughter. And, um, and so, and so this is, you know, it's, it's nonverbal. This isn't, this isn't her words. Like if you looked at the dialogue alone, like a transcript of the session, you wouldn't be aware of this. But, um, but so, so I said to her at a certain point, you know, I, I don't mean to be critical when I make this observation, but, but but I'm noticing that virtually every time you see anything that's serious or full of feeling, that you, you follow it with this kind of nervous laughter. And she said something like, um, David. Oh, no, I didn't use the word nervous laughter. I think I just used the I said, you know, you smile or you laugh. And then she said, when I pointed this out, she said, David, it's called nervous laughter. Everybody, everybody does that. And um, and I said, well, but, you know, I'm not talking about everybody. I'm talking about you. And but then I went on to say, you know, I'm aware that I, too, will laugh at times. Uh, when I say something serious and, 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 and I said, you know, I'm also aware that my, my brother, uh, could be pretty irritating to me because he, it was almost like a, a tick that every time he said anything, uh, that was serious, there would, it would be accompanied by this nervous laughter. Anyway, we, we, t- we explored that together and, um, and, and she became aware, or rather, we became aware together that there were particular experiences she had growing up, particular experiences I had growing up that led to the conviction that it just wasn't safe to be real. It wasn't safe to have uh, feelings. And so you had to protect yourself by, in a sense, expressing yourself and then kind of taking it back or nullifying it or undoing it with, with a laugh. And, um, and as I, as I was talking to her about this, uh, or as we were talking about it together, I found myself becoming tearful as, as I thought about my own experience, as I thought about her experience, it just seemed sad, uh, that each of us would have had to adapt to our, uh, growing up in the, in this particular way. And, um, she was very moved at the fact that I was moved. And I remember that, uh, soon after the session, I got an email from her that talked about the power of that session, uh, how I had succeeded in making her aware of something she was utterly oblivious to. And she said that in some ways, what was most important was the fact that I was visibly moved by her experience, by my own experience. She felt profoundly accepted. And I remember these words, she said, Tears speak louder than words. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that all of that is, I, I hope, evocative of what I mean by the nonverbal subtext. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah. 
Okay, and I really want to ask you about this third healing force in changing your attachment style and moving it in the direction of security. Meditation. I think of meditation as something you do by yourself, not relational Mm -hmm. in the way that Mm -hmm. marriage and therapy are. So I'm curious how you feel it's helped you heal your attachment wounding. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting just that one point you make uh, that meditation is solitary. And, um, you know, that's true and it's not true. I mean, there's two senses in which it's not true. Uh, The first is that, um, you know, in Buddhism, they talk about the most uh, powerful spiritual resources as being uh, the Buddha, you know, and then the Dharma, which is what the Buddha taught, and the Sangha, which is the group of meditators. And so, you know, many of us uh, who meditate also participate in meditation in other than a solitary uh, context. And, uh, you know, my sangha happens to be a sangha of two because my wife and I meditate uh, together. Um, and I think, I think there's another sense in which meditation is not uh, all about um, a single person. And, and I guess what I'm, maybe this is a bit of a stretch, but what I'm thinking is that meditation uh involves, you might say, two parts of the self. It's an, you might say it's kind of an internal relationship between the, uh, the witness, the watcher, and what is watched or witnessed. In other words, you know, I am paying attention in the role of the witness to the thoughts that arise, uh, the feelings that arise, uh, the rising and falling of my belly with my uh, inhalation and exhalation. So there, there is that kind of relational aspect even to uh, solitary meditation. Um, but, you know, in terms of well, let me, let me, maybe you can refresh my memory about the, were you asking how, how meditation, uh, how I look at that as a healing process? How meditation or? has helped you in shifting the attachment patterning in your life? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, my hunch is that it's, it's more complicated than this, but there's a lot that I, There's multiple ways in which I have benefited and continue to benefit uh, from meditation such that I think of it not only as a uh, spiritual practice in some ways, uh, but also as a therapeutic practice. So what I have in mind are two things in particular. One is that I think what I and what many people learn in the process of meditating is that our minds are not entirely out of our control. Um, You know, when I, you know, for many years, you know, in my life, I was uh, troubled by intrusive thoughts, uh, troubling fantasies, difficult memories. And I would regularly feel as though when these thoughts, memories, fantasies arose, I had no choice but to fold. I had no choice but to um, uh, submit, you might say, to the to the to the difficulty associated with these thoughts, feelings, uh, memories, fantasies, and so on. And what 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 meditation has taught me is that there's a way in which I actually have more control over my mind, uh, what I choose to think of, what I choose to pay attention to. I mean, you could look at meditation as a kind of um, 
process of, uh, you know, um, going to the gym for the mind and the muscles that you strengthen are the muscles of focus, uh, attention and, and so on. So that's one way in which, uh, meditation has really strengthened my sense of being in charge of myself, being, uh, you might say an agent, uh, who, you know, makes things happen, including, uh, things in my own mind. Um, and I think the other and maybe even more important way in which uh, meditation has been therapeutic for me and which in, in which I think meditation is therapeutic for many, many people is that um, meditation is emotion regulating so that I it's not an unfamiliar experience. Uh, in fact, it's a almost predictable, reliable experience. Uh, for me to sit down for a period of meditation feeling anxious, distressed, uh, low. And by the time I've meditated for 20, 30, 40 minutes, I come out of it in in an entirely different state of mind in which those difficult emotions are more regulated, you might say. Um, I feel more grounded, more centered, uh, less beset with, uh, with difficult emotion. Mm-hmm. Now, David, you know, I asked you in your own life story, how mm-hmm. have you worked with your own difficult early patterning? And yes. you gave this, you know, triple header strong answer, and I can see them all working together, meditation, yeah. therapy and your long-term marriage. And I did want to ask you a question, though, about your marriage, which is you talked about the power of being in a relationship with someone who has a level of secure attachment. And my question is, so for those of us who had difficult childhoods, can we marry up? Can we find that person with a more secure attachment and be seen as attractive to them? Does that work? (laughs) Uh, can you marry up? Uh, I th- I think uh, I, th- I think that's possible for sure. Um, but but I get I guess I wouldn't I don't even think of it quite in those terms. I I, I just think I, I think about making a good choice given who you are. Uh, as a person and what you've experienced in the course of your history and what your particular uh, needs are. And, um, you know, so for example, I think what's been true in my marriage, but also for that matter in my therapy, uh, in the, the, you know, the the most significant therapy uh, relationship that I've had, is that both of these relationships were with women uh, who um, were in some sense the anti-mother. In other words, my mother was, you know, highly volatile, prone to anger, uh, had an impossible time looking at herself. uh, And so both in therapy and in my marriage, I, I think I had the sort of internal wisdom uh, the unconscious wisdom to make a choice uh, to be with someone who was not volatile, not angry, who was capable of of looking at uh, at herself, um, and, and I think that that in a way that willingness to look at oneself, I mean, that seems to me utterly central, absolutely critical. Um, you know, whether whether we're talking about a therapist or, or a marriage partner. I mean, the ability to look at oneself, to consider why one does what one does, uh, to consider the impact of what one does on other people. I mean, that's, in a sense, that's a reflection of security. Um, and at the same time, you know, it just so happens that, you know, my wife's own history was, uh, you know, was quite problematic. But... Uh, but she managed by virtue of uh, her experiences, I think largely probably in therapy, uh, to come out on the other, to some extent on the other side of those difficult experiences. Okay, David, just one final question. You know, this yes. whole 
topic of healing our early attachment wounding has been, yeah. you know, it's a really, 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 underline the word really, important topic to me, yeah. to me personally, yeah. Yeah. in my own heart opening process yeah. as a person. Yeah. And what I'd love to just hear as a final note here from you is sure. why this topic has become so important to you and really the focus of a lot of your writing and teaching. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it has everything to do with with my own history. Uh, in in other words, uh, you know, having come from a uh, somewhat wounding uh, set of um, original relationships, uh, particularly with my mother, um, I think I've I've long been motivated to find. Um, I don't know, kind of a way through that particular labyrinth. In other words, I, 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 I think I've known from the time that I was very uh, young that uh, that I had some work to do, and um, and and so there's a way in which when I uh, studied uh, psychotherapy, you know, for example, when I was in graduate school, my and writing a, a PhD dissertation, my first choice was to write a dissertation about uh, so-called master therapists. And, and the idea was to somehow learn from someone who was highly expert um, exactly what was it in a therapy relationship that could allow people to change? And, uh, you know, ultimately I was looking to change myself. Um, but I think along the way, um, you know, I've gotten very, very interested in what might be beneficial about psychotherapy and for that matter, meditation, not only for myself, uh, but for my, my patients and, uh, you know, and all of those, uh, readers, uh, who have, uh, found my book, you know, my, my goal is to, as a therapist, as a writer, um, you know, as a friend, as a, as a marriage partner, you know, my goal in some ways is to, you know, help other people to, be more fully themselves, um, to suffer less, um, and, and so on. David, I want to thank you so much for this honest and illuminating conversation. Thank you. Hey, okay. okay. It was my, it was my pleasure. I've been speaking with David Wallen. He's the author of the classic book, Attachment in Psychotherapy. And with Sounds True, he's teaching an eight-week online course that begins on September 11th of this year. And the course is called Attachment in the Practice of Psychotherapy, Relational Transformation, Nonverbal Experience, and the Psychology of the Therapist. And I think certainly, David, something I've learned from your work is that for a therapist, to heal their own attachment wounding and to work on that and to be aware of it is so important. And so I certainly can highly recommend for all of the practicing clinicians out there the value of this training. Thank you so much, David. Well, thank you. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.